Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin the episode, just a quick note that this was recorded before the breaking news about the sacking of General Zeluzhny. We will be covering that in full detail in tomorrow's episode. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest news from Ukraine as Russian units attempt to storm the eastern town of Avdivka. In the US, aid for Ukraine has faltered on Capitol Hill, and in Russia, a potential anti-war presidential candidate has been barred from standing against Putin. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 8th of February, one year and 348 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and deputy US editor, Rosina Sabor. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start in the east. Avdivka, still very, very violent there. Large numbers of Russian forces pushing to capture Avdivka, says a, a Ukrainian official. This is Vitaly Barabash, the mayor of Avdivka. We've quoted him before. He was speaking to Ukrainian state media this morning. He said, unfortunately, the enemy is pressing from all directions. There is not a single part of our city that is more or less calm. Indeed, they are storming with very large forces. Now, earlier in the week, you may remember Mr. Barabash warned that efforts to, to hold the town had reached a critical stage, in his words. There are now thought to be fewer than a thousand residents left in the town, once home to 32,000. Russian forces have been trying to cut the supply line running out to the northwest and encircle Ukrainian forces dug in. They started this back in October, but they've really ramped it up in the last few weeks. They are, in my opinion, desperate to get a, a victory for Putin ahead of the elections in uh, in Moscow later on this month. He's got to show something. Mr. Barabash says the situation in some directions is simply unreal. Now, today's British Defence Intelligence message referred to this. They said street-to-street combat is taking place in Avdivka and said Russia is likely to have rotated additional units, fresh units, fresher units, into the fight in the last two weeks. Over the last four weeks... 
British uh, MOD says 600 guided munitions have been fired at Avdivka from fighter jets. However, these aircraft are forced to launch their munitions at further and further, at greater ranges because Ukrainian air defence in the area is degrading, or they are having a success, and therefore the jets are having to launch their weapons further away, degrading the accuracy. And just as an indication of that kind of air defence pressure that Ukraine is able to exert on the Russian air and aviation, air being sort of fast jets generally, aviation helicopters, Ukrainian forces today, well, the report is today, I think it may have been yesterday, the the action, um, but shot down a Russian Ka-52 attack helicopter known as Alligator. This was in the Avdivka area. Uh, This came from Alexander Tonavsky, the commander of Ukraine's Tavria group. Uh, Speaking on Telegram, Mr. Tonavsky said, the enemy's Alligator with its crew was hit by a portable anti-air missile and fertilised the soil in Avdivka. So still extremely violent there and likely to remain so for um, for the certainly the, sh- the short term in the run of the elections, I think, and possibly uh, possibly beyond as well. Separately, Ukraine shot down last night 11 Russian drones, a number of targeted strikes across four regions of the country overnight. This is, comes comes from Ukraine's air force. They say the drones were launched from Cape Chada in, in Crimea. It's, that's in the east of Crimea. We pointed out yesterday it's about 50k southwest of the Kirsch Bridge. It's on the south coast of Crimea. They fired 17 Shahid drones targeting in particular Mykolaiv and Odessa in the south, uh, Vinitsia in the sort of centre west of the country and Dnipro in the centre east. The In Mykolaiv, there were 20 residential houses plus commercial buildings hit and civilian infrastructure in Odessa hit also. No casualties reported yet that I've seen and um, we're not yet clear on the extent of the damage in the other regions. And just one more, uh, David, there's a really interesting report out today led by Human Rights Watch alleging evidence of what they called apparent war crimes. They say it's been uncovered following Russia's invasion of Mariupol. So this is, um, you'll remember Mariupol, the assault on the city from roughly, well, from February when the full-scale invasion started to, to around May, left thousands of civilians dead and injured, including many in apparently unlawful attack, according to this report. This is a two-year investigation that showed at least 10,000 people were killed in the city many of whom were buried in unmarked graves. It details 14 attacks on non-military targets, including strikes on hospitals, apartment buildings and the city's theatre, as well as it says it has evidence that 93% of high-rise apartment buildings in the city centre were damaged as uh, as the Russian assault went in. This is a 224-page report led by Human Rights Watch in conjunction with Truthhounds. That's a, a leading Ukrainian Human Rights Organization and Situ Research, S-I-T-U, Situ Research. They um, they're specialists in visual representation. They did all the 3D visualization for the report in the built-up area. It's based on 240 interviews, mostly with displaced Mariupol residents, as well as a, an extensive analysis of verified photos and satellite imagery of those interviewees. 26 were Mariupol city officials and volunteers. 11 were healthcare workers. 168 other Mariupol residents, seven 
national Ukrainian government officials and 28 other capacities such as humanitarian workers, journalists, etc. The report calls for an inquiry into potential Russian war crimes. We'll put the links in the the episode notes today. It's it's a report well well worth having a look at. If only, if you haven't got time, don't put it in the TLDR bracket just have a look at the summary at the top and you'll get a good a good feel for where they're coming from and the um, the methodology of how they conducted their research and that's us up to date david thank you very much dom just a note to listeners we will be doing an interview with one of the lead researchers on that report next wednesday i hope so we'll be able to go more in depth on some of the stories and things they uncovered when they were looking at the destruction in mariupol so do listen to that next week and as dom said we'll put the links in the show notes francis sternley can i come to you before rosina francis what have you been looking at Thanks, David. Listeners will recall we were speculating last week about the fate of the anti-war presidential candidate in Russia, Boris Nadizhdin, specifically whether he would be allowed to run by the Kremlin. What was your money on? If you opted for no, then congratulations. Apparently, the Central Election Commission has refused to register him as a candidate, upholding those claims that we discussed that it had found flaws in signatures he and his allies had collected in support of his candidacy. He had vowed to challenge a decision in the Supreme Court, saying, I collected more than 200,000 signatures across Russia. We conducted the collection openly and honestly. The queues at our headquarters and collection points were watched by the whole world. Taking part in the presidential election is the most important political decision of my life. I'm not giving up on my intentions. Nevertheless, the commission says 9,000 signatures of the 100,000 submitted were invalid. Suffice to say, he wasn't expected to win, even if he was to allow to participate. But his campaign has served as a means of vocalising opposition to what the Kremlin calls its special military operation. An important point, though, as Sergei Radchenko, historian of the Cold War, has written on X. I appreciate that Nadizhdin was perceived as the last straw for Russia's drowning liberalism and that you have to do something. And it was important to show that there was a popular opposition, even in a tyranny. And yet, if you agree to play Putin's game by Putin's rules, you've already lost even before you begin. The Russians lost this game a long, long time ago. But hope dies last. In other words, you cannot win through conventional means through the democratic process in Russia anymore. Since we mentioned Radchenko, I know you interviewed him for our sister podcast, Battle Lines, David, including discussing some of his recent reflections on the Cold War and its lessons for today. One aspect of that that he's written about is that signalling of resolve works. Stalin backed off from a whole range of misadventures, including in Iran and Turkey, Japan, and most prominently Berlin, when he was faced with strong US resolve. By contrast, signals of irresolution or weakness, e.g. by the US in Korea in early 1950, led directly to Stalin blessing Kim Il-sung's invasion of the South. That's why, by the way, I think Putin should still be seen as more of a Stalin figure when it comes to his approach to geopolitics. He operates like Stalin in the space afforded to him. Hitler, as I've said many times, was less inclined that way. He was a true ideologue who believed in his destiny with an almost religious ferocity, which led him to seeing geopolitics very differently and sort of tied to this idea of fate. But anyway, another important observation from Mr. Radchenko is that the Cold War was a global affair from the start. 
Facing constraints in Europe, Stalin turned to Asia, seeking to exploit Western weakness. What happened in Asia then had an impact on Soviet thinking in Europe. Again, highly relevant to today, with events in Africa and the Middle East being stoked by Russia. Ultimately, one has to plan, he says, for the long term. It's the resilient who get the prize. The Soviets were aggressive, but they weren't resilient. In the end, it all fell down like a house of cards, only... Once only one or two cards were pulled out from under it. Interesting reflections. I look forward to listening to that interview you did with him, David. In other news, in further evidence of that long-term relationship Britain is offering Ukraine, I think a pretty unique one in terms of its duration. They're offering a 100-year relationship in that package. London has announced today it will extend tariff-free trade with Ukraine on almost all goods until 2029. Britain removed tariff on all its trade with Ukraine after the war broke out two years ago and had previously agreed the agreement would last until March 24. Britain's business and trade ministry said tariff-free trade would be extended on all goods for five years except eggs and poultry, which will be extended for two, and that British firms would also benefit from the removal of tariffs for exports to Ukraine. Greg Hans, the trade minister, has said this agreement provides much needed long term economic support to Ukraine, its businesses and people critical to its recovery. He added that the support would continue for as long as is needed. Now, in lieu of certain military commitments, countries are doing their best to provide support in other ways. Russia threatens very, very deep consequences over German plans to confiscate Russian oil giant's assets following Germany's economy ministry informed Rosneft earlier this week that it was considering nationalising shares in the company's German assets worth about $7 billion, which it seized following Russia's invasion. So the Kremlin aren't too chuffed. Indeed, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, has urged the European Union and US to step up efforts to supply aid to Ukraine ahead of his talks with Joe Biden. He said we must find a way to all do more together. And he said that what was promised was still not enough and that Germany had made a very large contribution, but it will not be enough on its own. Now is the moment where we have to do more and what is necessary. That is to jointly give Ukraine the opportunity to defend itself. Strong words. But given the German decision not to send Taurus missiles, one can understand those who feel that Germany too often talks the talk but doesn't quite walk the walk. But it does, of course, remain true. They are a huge and important donor to Ukraine and their position has shifted substantially over the course of the war. But as I say, not as substantially enough from the perspectives of some. Indicative of the growing frustration and I think anxiety in Europe at the moment on defence matters. Donald Tusk, the new Prime Minister of Poland, has launched a scathing attack on the US Senate after Republicans voted down that bill to provide $60 billion aid package to Ukraine, which Roz is going to cover shortly. Dear Republican Senators of America, Ronald Reagan, who helped millions of us to win back our freedom and independence, must be turning in his grave today. Shame on you. He said, America's reputation is taking a real battering at the moment among its allies, not helped optically by the upcoming Tucker Carlson interview with Putin that airs tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time, which is 11 p.m. GMT. We'll unpack that in full tomorrow. Can't wait. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for taking us through all of that. Rosina Sabor, thank you so much for joining us again from Washington. Earlier in the week, you sketched out the days ahead 
the combined aid border bill and how you thought and many thought it would fail. It certainly did. Can you bring us up to date what happened and what is happening on the Hill? Thanks, David. Well, US aid for Ukraine is in real peril after Republicans in the Senate blocked a major bipartisan deal, as we've just discussed yesterday afternoon, that included around $61 billion in funding for Kyiv. That deal was months in the making and would also have offered significant new capabilities to deal with the crisis unfolding on the US-Mexico border, as well as foreign aid assistance for Israel and Taiwan, all in the old world order, major Republican priorities. The package of funding, 118 billion in total, needed 60 votes to advance. But after a torrent of attacks on the bill by Donald Trump and his allies in Congress, Republicans failed to muster enough votes to join the Democrats in advancing the proposal. This is a really stunning rebuke by Senate Republicans of their own leadership in the chamber. It's worth keeping in mind that these measures, and particularly the border control elements, were co-authored by one of their own, a senator for Oklahoma, James Lankford. Let me tell you, Mr. Lankford is no moderate. In fact, he's one of the most conservative senators in the chamber. Why are we talking about border measures in a bill to fund Ukraine's defence? Well, to remind listeners, it's because, as we discussed on Tuesday, Republicans had demanded that in exchange for allocating money for Ukraine, Democrats granted them concessions in the form of bolstering America's own border security. But the decision by Republican senators to vote down their own senior leadership's proposal is really a reflection of the fact that Donald Trump sees the scenes unfolding on the US-Mexico border currently as his best ticket back to the White House. Just to stress how much of an aberration from traditional Washington politics this is, most Democrats voted for this bill, a bill the Wall Street Journal's own editorial board called the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. Meanwhile, just a small handful of Republicans voted for this. Where does that leave aid for Ukraine? Well, There is now added pressure on Republican senators to pass a standalone foreign aid bill, but that remains an uncertain prospect. The Senate took the first steps towards debating a foreign aid package last night, but the effort was aborted, in the words of the Democratic Senate leader, Chuck Schumer, to, quote, give our Republican colleagues time to figure themselves out. In an hour from now, Republicans will be meeting behind closed doors to do just that, try to hash out their differences behind, away from the cameras, behind closed doors. The Senate will be coming back to this issue at midday Washington time, so about four hours from now. So an uncertain key test vote looms and we'll have a clearer idea of where that stands in a few hours. Well, what a day on the Hill and in Washington. Um, Rosina, could you just quickly explain for us what happens What happens if this bill, this bill today passes? What happens next? But also what happens if it doesn't pass? Is that it? Is that the end? Well, that's a great question, David. And the honest answer is nobody really knows. <laughs> I think what this whole episode has demonstrated is there is no coherent and united GOP 
I, I was about to say foreign policy, but actually any policy at the moment. So it's very difficult to know where we go from here. If it does advance today, there'll be further votes. It then has to pass the House of Representatives, which is an even taller order because the Republican conference in the House is even more divided than it is in the Senate. And actually, just to show that the Republican chaos isn't isolated to the Senate, just to take listeners through this, in the House of Representatives, Republicans saw two embarrassing defeats on Tuesday night. One was a failed effort to impeach Joe Biden's Homeland Security Secretary. That's the equivalent of the UK Home Secretary, for those who don't know. And that's after some Republicans joined Democrats in voting that measure down. And then the second major embarrassing defeat for Republicans in the House was an effort to pass a standalone Israel aid package. Remember, this Israel is a key ally of the US. A key priority for most Republicans is making sure Israel has the defence it needs in its current war with Hamas. Both of those measures failed. So complete dysfunction, complete chaos among Republicans in, in Congress at the moment. So it's very hard to know where we go from here. And actually, this is a sign of things to come beyond this election year. Absolutely. Let's just go back then to that quote that Francis relayed to us from Donald Tusk, the new Prime Minister of Poland, who said, just to remind ourselves, dear Republican senators of America, Ronald Reagan, who helped millions of us to win back our freedom and independence, must be turning in his grave today. Shame on you. That that quote, you know, I mean, we've 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 run a separate on it on our website. It resonates a lot with our readers and our listeners. Do you get any sense that the people who it's supposed to reach, the people that it needs to reach, the people it needs to you know to change the minds of, w- will that get through to them? Or maybe even it, does this feel like you know Europeans telling Americans what to do, which I understand never goes down particularly well. Well, I would politely tell Mr. Tusk that this is no longer Ronald Reagan's Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. And um, where we go from here is hard to see. But that's not an argument. That's not a line of appeal that will really resonate with many Republicans in Congress right now. But in terms of what are the long term impacts of this, it goes beyond not passing a single bill. I mean, we've had a Republican senator, Lisa Murkowski, come out and say the clear thing from this is actually the message is you can't trust the GOP to negotiate. This is a bill that they helped craft. As I said, James Lankford, no moderate, one of the most conservative senators in the chamber, He co-authored this bill and his own party have scuttled it. So, you know, we've had Lisa Murkowski's take on it, which is she said to CNN, I've gone through the multiple stages of grief. Today, I'm just pissed off. That's how a lot of Republicans feel. But the way out of this is less clear. So just to remind ourselves, in an hour's time, the Republicans go behind closed doors. We won't know what's going on, unless there are leaks, of course. And they'll try and desperately figure out what they want, what they might vote for. Later today, we get that vote. Of course, some listeners might be listening to this in a, you know, after this is all taking place. If the vote passes, we don't exactly know what happens, but it'll have to scale even further, more difficult heights in the different bits of the, the US legislature. And if it fails, we don't know what comes next. Rosina, is that roughly right? And what will you be looking at? Who should listeners be paying attention to in the hours ahead. Absolutely. Well, we may hear from Mitch McConnell after this 
Republican gathering. He's the Republican Senate. He's the Republican Senate minority leader. So this, the most senior Republican in the U.S. Senate. What we hear from him may give us a key indication of the kind of mood music within his party at the moment. But as I say, there is increasing pressure now on Republicans to pass this foreign aid package. There is strong support among Republicans in the Senate to make sure America's allies have the defences they need. They see the long-term importance of that. It was the Republican Party who tied these foreign aid measures to US border security. Since they've now voted that down, there is they will be aware there is public pressure, there is domestic pressure, but also international pressure for them to now find a resolution to this question of how to get Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan the funding it needs to bolster its defences. Dom or Francis, I know you've at least one of you's definitely got a question. Ross, delighted to to chat again. We've not heard much from Nikki Haley in the last uh, couple of weeks, really. Over here, anyway, you may have over there. What what's she been up to? Any sort of puff, any momentum that she may have had out of the out of the, the second vote seems to have dissipated. Are we reading that right over here, or are we just not not as close to it uh, on, as on your side? Well, Nikki Haley's had a, an extremely embarrassing defeat this week. She was on the ballot in Nevada's primary for the for the GOP nomination. This was a primary that actually was an entirely symbolic vote because it carries no delegates, which are what really matters in terms of being crowned the Republican nominee. And yet, despite having no competition on the ballot, she lost to none of the above (laughs) vote. So a symbolic defeat, but a very embarrassing one for Nikki Haley this week. So she's focusing on South Carolina at the moment. That's her home state. It's the next state in the Republican contest where both she and Donald Trump will be on the ballot together. But I mean, the result this week, the events of this week have really underscored, as I said, this isn't the party of Reagan anymore. And the vision for the GOP that Nikki Haley is promoting is not one that is widely popular among the party base anymore. Thanks, Roz. You mentioned Nikki Haley there. I think it's pretty clear to everybody that Donald Trump is going to win the nomination for the Republicans. Thinking then about the presidential contest specifically, we know about all of these different court cases and the speculation that Donald Trump may even be imprisoned prior to November. Lots of speculation about that. What's your sense? How realistic is it that Donald Trump would actually get in very, very serious legal difficulty, which could impede his presidential pursuit? Well, funny that you should ask that today of all days. The Supreme Court will be weighing in on this today. There is an effort to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in some states. The argument that those proponents of that have put forward is the events of January 6th, 2021, the Capitol riots, and Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election, that all disqualifies Donald Trump in in, in this line of argument. 
the people putting this forward, they argue that this disqualifies Donald Trump from appearing on the ballot. They're using the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution to make that case. There is a line in the in the Constitution that says insurrectionists cannot hold higher office. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the essence of it. And this has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, which will now weigh in, we'll hear arguments in that case today, as to whether Donald Trump's even qualified to be on the ballot in the election. Now, I think we can probably assume that they will give that argument pretty short shrift, but it speaks to just how uncertain and contentious this election is is shaping up to be. In terms of the criminal cases, you mentioned the possibility of Donald Trump going to prison there. Donald Trump's campaign is very well aware that his best hope for this campaign, for his hopes for the White House, is to delay as much as possible. So in every one of those cases, he is appealing and appealing again. So there's all all of these delay tactics happening to try and stall the progress of those trials. The one that carries the biggest jeopardy for him is the one in Washington, D.C. that relates to the events of January 6th and the broader efforts to overturn Joe Biden's victory in 2020. That trial, it was scheduled to happen on March 4th. That's been delayed indefinitely until the Supreme Court weighs in on the question of whether Donald Trump, while president, is it possible to hold a a president responsible for things he does in office or is he immune as president you know it, it does the powers of the presidency cover him from this criminal prosecution again a case that needs to be heard by the supreme court and again a very uncertain path to that trial so a lot of questions that still need to be answered there Well, thank you so much, Rosina, for answering all of our questions and taking us through the tumultuous events of this week on The Hill. Coming up after this short break, I ask Roz, Francis and Dom to share their final thoughts on a tumultuous day in Ukraine and the United States. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's move then to our final thoughts. Dom or Francis, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, I note in the last last hour, news is broken of a phone call today between Xi Jinping and, and Putin. So this is coming from Reuters. Apparently, uh, President Xi said that China and Russia should pursue close strategic coordination and defend the sovereignty, security and development interests of their respective countries. This is coming... Hang on. Irony alert. Uh, 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 sound the klaxon. China's state broadcaster called CCTV. I mean, come on. Anyway, this phone call, they said both sides should resolutely oppose interference and in internal affairs by external forces. Same old, same old. 
President Eleven then went on to say that the two countries should also cultivate new dynamics of cooperation and main, I'm saying because this is the only interesting bit maintain new dynamics of cooperation and maintain the stability of the industrial supply chain. So long been a, an issue about how much China is going to weigh in on the side of Russia or support Putin industrially. They've been really lukewarm here, especially as well. They had to. They had to tell Putin to. She had to tell Putin to stop going on about nuclear escalation the whole time. They've been very lukewarm in their materiel support for Russia. But interesting that they talk there about the stability of the industrial supply chain. So that again sort of reaffirms this. Um, this relationship. What do they call it? The no friends with benefits relationship type of thing. No drawbacks or whatever something like that but yeah so another another resolute message there from xi that at the moment there's there's not much light between china and russia so developing in the last couple of hours thank you very much tom francis Durney, would you like to go next thanks david Spectator journalist and friend of the pod Svetlana Moronets has written an interesting article in The Spectator, or The Specky as we affectionately call it here, called Ukraine is in a bind over mass conscription. And she looks in more detail at the implications of the bill that tentatively passed yesterday in Kyiv and the general situation in the armed forces. As she writes, in the Second World War, the average age of a combat soldier was 26. In the Falklands, it was 23. For Ukrainian soldiers, it is 43. The war in Ukraine has been so far fought mostly by fathers so their sons and daughters can rebuild the country when the fighting ends. Ukraine's 600-mile front line is being defended by 880,000 soldiers, according to Zelensky. Most of them have had no rest from fighting since the start of the full-scale war two years ago. Zelensky's former objection to this new conscription drive is partly on the basis that 500,000 new conscripts would come with a hefty price, at least £10 billion for training, pay, clothing, food and equipment. That's about a quarter of Ukraine's government spending for this year and almost half the military budget. The topic of mass mobilisation has also led to a rapid decline in public confidence across all government institutions, the parliament, the president's office and the defence ministry. No one wants to be the proponent of conscription and so a blame game has started in Kyiv. MPs from Zelensky's Servant of the People Party have been instructed to direct questions to the military. Let the generals face the backlash. Interestingly, Svetlana also underlines the important point that this is a vicious cycle. The tougher it gets on the front line, the more civilians want to avoid the draft. So the worse the manpower shortage becomes, which then makes it tougher on the front line, etc., etc. This, of course, isn't a new problem. Wars often trigger that process. But it is becoming increasingly urgent now, with so many troops unrested for almost two years. So I recommend the piece for those who are interested in this subject. And I know that we hope to get her on again soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Thank you, Dom. Would add my thoughts to Francis there. Do go and read Svetlana's pieces. Do follow her newsletter that she does for the Specky. It's absolutely fantastic. She's one of the one of the best Ukrainian journalists following the war, writing in English. Rosina Sabor, would you like the final words? I think I'll just end where I began, really. We're in uncharted territory. I mean, what does the dysfunction we've seen this week on Capitol Hill tell us about the years ahead? There's every possibility that in November, the balance of power in the two chambers of Congress will be switched. We may have Democrats taking the House of Representatives and Republicans may well take the Senate. 
that may leave us in the same situation we're in now with any legislation that comes out of one chamber unable to advance in the other. It's a bleak prospect and it's unclear whether Joe Biden's re-election or indeed Donald Trump's return to power will do anything to soothe that. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 